Welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Hi, I'm Emily Johnson, Principal at Hydric and Struggles and member of the Global Industrial Practice. Our HS Canada Leadership Series shares timely and relevant leadership insights on what organizations and leaders should be thinking about to stay competitive, both in Canada and on the global stage. In today's podcast, I'm excited to be talking to Chuck Magro. Chuck brings nearly 30 years of experience across the agriculture and chemicals industries, including over 15 years with Nova Chemicals and 12 years with Agrium and Nutrien. As president and CEO of Agrium, Chuck led the company's $36 billion merger of equals with Potash Corporation of Saskatchewan to form Nutrien, which he then led for three years as president and CEO, with annual revenues in excess of $20 billion and 25,000 employees worldwide. Nutrien is the world's largest crop nutrient company, the largest agricultural retailer in North America and Australia, and one of Canada's top 20 largest corporations. Chuck currently sits on the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board and has held several other board roles, including with the Business Council of Canada, the Business Council of Alberta, and the International Fertilizer Industry Association. Chuck, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Hi, Emily. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Chuck, one of the great things about your background is you've had the chance to develop a perspective on a broad cross-section of Canada's key industries and a very global perspective as well. Based on that experience, what are the most exciting growth opportunities you see in Canada at this point? Right. So first of all, what I would say is I'm very optimistic about Canada's growth prospects. We're a country that is actually blessed with having ample natural resources and such a talented and educated and skilled workforce. And I know there's been a lot of media attention around some of the newer economy, driving the economy in Canada, digital, e-commerce, and these things are really important for, I think, the Canadian economy. But my background is really in more of the traditional economy, the industrial spaces, so oil and gas, mining, chemicals, agriculture, forestry. And I think where the new economy meets these older traditional industries, it's really, really fascinating. So I think what we're starting to see is that companies and even the the startup space are starting to use digital investments in big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning. We're starting to see advancements in material sciences and biosciences to really transform or even in some cases disrupt these more traditional industries. And I think that's going to be great for the industries. I think it's going to be great for Canada. In fact, when you look at what these advancements are trying to do, they're trying to make these industries safer and healthier for people, more productive, and of course, more sustainable. And these industries typically have been really dominated by exceptionally large organizations because, of course, economies of scale are so very, very important. But what you're starting to see now in Canada is that there are smaller startups happening in these areas. That's creating an ecosystem of innovation, of talent. And I think that that's going to be great for the Canadian economy. And what I would say is overall, I think that a more diversified, balanced economy for Canada will be good for all Canadians. And Chuck, what types of leaders do you think all these new opportunities will require? How does that differ from our traditional companies and industries? Well, I think that 
some of the important leadership skills that have always been there are still front and center when it comes to what makes a good leader great. We need leaders that are authentic, that are purpose-driven, with strong visions, and I think this is important, who love what they do. It's still very important. It's a big part of our lives as leaders running companies, and it's really important that we love what we do. But I think that there is a modern take on the leader that we need for the future. Obviously, we need leaders with very strong global perspectives. The world now, more than ever, is interconnected. Geopolitics, trade, competition most likely are going to come from outside of Canada, and we need Canadian leaders to really understand the dynamics globally. I think the other trait I would say is leaders now more than ever, I think, have to really build strong and sustainable cultures. I think we, we understand the organization and long-term success factors now more than we ever have. And it's really important that culture and culture building is a key tool in a leader's toolkit, not only for getting results because the world is very competitive, but the what and the how now of how those results are generated has never been more important in today's world. The other thing I'd say is if you think about leadership traits, well, I think all leaders, whether you're running a $100,000 revenue company or a $100 billion company, all leaders need to have an entrepreneurial mindset because it's really important now that organizations try new things, that they move quickly, and that they embrace change and to fast fail. Before that used to be quite a criticism that leaders would never talk about their failures. Now I'm starting to see many more progressive leaders really start to use case studies and communicate what worked and what hasn't and learn from it. And so I think that those are sort of the modern take on leaders that I would call out, Emily. And Chuck, when it comes to driving the technology and digital innovation piece that you've referenced, that's been a big part of your experience. What leadership strategies and skills have you discovered are imperative to success as you lead these types of transformations? Well, look, this needs to be really front and center for most organizations in today's world. And I've had limited opportunity to kind of study innovation and digital learnings. But what I have really understood, and we had some really good success, I think, with incorporating digital innovation into our core strategies as an organization. And there seems to be some really key themes. And I think these will apply fairly broadly to most organizations trying to embrace digital innovation. What I would say is the things that certainly have worked for me and for the organizations I've been involved with have to first and foremost be that there needs to be a clear business purpose for the digital innovation. It's like any other capital allocation investment or decision that we need to make. What is the purpose of that investment and what are we trying to accomplish? And that needs to be front and center. I think the other thing that I've observed is that your core business, whatever that is, needs to own the digital innovation. It can't be in a research and development lab. It can't be a project on the side. There has to be an integrated framework where the digital innovation needs to be tight with the overall core strategy of the organization. And I think if we start with those kind of general principles, what you'll find is that it'll cause the organization to change internal business processes, HR programs, incentive programs, which are foundational, I think, to how organizations really drive transformational change, which really, for most organizations, that's what this is all about. And what about derailers? What are the biggest derailers in your mind for these types of transformations? 
Well, when we first embarked on our digital journey, we actually took about a year to study companies that have done this really well and companies that have had pretty significant failures in adoption of digital innovation. And one of the key things that stood out was, did the core organization accept or reject the digital innovation? And in some of the organizations that really got it wrong, what happened was the digital innovation, whatever it was, was actually thought of as a competitor to the core business. And that's because there wasn't an integration between incentive programs, compensation, even cultural programs and systems. And that led to the core business really starting to compete against the new digital innovation. So I think that that is one of the major learnings that I've taken away is that leaders need to work towards a seamless framework where the digital innovation will not only be supported, but embraced and people will be rewarded for its adoption. That's fascinating. So many things to consider when driving innovation like this. Chuck, switching gears a bit here, I've heard you talk a lot about the importance of the agriculture industry communicating its story, which is something your other leaders talk about quite a bit, particularly within the natural resources sectors, where communicating a story, particularly to an end consumer, is not something that was historically focused on. How have you thought about communicating the Canadian agriculture industry story? And what do you think is important for all industrial leaders to think about when developing this type of communication strategy? Yeah, look, I think this is a great question. I'll talk about ag, but I think it is, as you call out rightly so, much broader. In fact, most natural resource-based industries do a pretty lousy job of telling their stories. And so I think what happens is then if the industry participants who have deep expertise in this are not talking about all the wonderful thing that's happening and telling their story about their industry and the progress that they're making. And of course, the challenges that they have, rightly so, that others will fill that void. And if you just look at Canadian agriculture, as you said, Emily, first of all, I'm a very proud participant in the Canadian ag scene. You know, I've been all over the world and I've talked to farmers basically on all continents And Canadian farmers are some of the most sophisticated and sustainable farmers on the planet. And by far, if you look at the percentage of sustainable farming that Canadian farmers use, it's a much higher percentage than almost any other developed agricultural economy in the world. And so Canadian farmers are leading the pack. And it's obvious when you look at the data. And then if you look at Canada as an agricultural producing country, only one of a very few amount of countries in the world that actually export food. And we need to be proud of that as Canadians and as a Canadian agricultural industry, because we're doing our part to feed the planet. We're doing our part to produce more with less. And yes, there are opportunities to improve, but that is a fantastic story. And the reason that I'm so passionate about telling the story is because 40 or 50 years ago, everyone had a connection to the farm. And many of us came off the farm multiple generations ago. And today that's just not the case. So There's less known about actually what Canadian farmers do. And that's why it's so very important to tell the story. And from a leadership perspective, you know, you talk about tools in a toolkit from a leadership perspective, telling a story, having people connect to it. You know, our brains are wired to understand and to enjoy stories. It was a primary mode of education for many of us for hundreds of years. So from a leadership perspective, getting good at telling stories both internally, but also externally. I think is a good leadership tool. And I think it will help these industries that, you know, to be candid, I think are misunderstood on multiple dimensions. Completely agreed. Thanks for that. Chuck, another area where you've clearly developed a lot of experience is acquisition and merger integration. Based on the integrations you've led, 
What are the critical leadership lessons you've learned in driving value through business combination? Yeah, I probably have more experience here than I care to admit. Um, I've, <laughs> I've been involved in, in one way or another with well over 100 acquisitions, and some were exceedingly small, some were quite large. And then, as you said in the opening, the mega merger of $36 billion. And what I'd say is that size is an important factor, but it sometimes doesn't determine whether it's going to be easier if it's smaller or more complex when they're larger. I think when you look at the success factors of mergers and acquisitions, companies need to build core competency around this. But it's really a fascinating experience when you've been through as many as I've been. And if you start thinking about what you need to get right to make a merger or acquisition successful, the textbooks will all talk about, well, you need to have strategic fit or industrial logic. And the math, of course, has to create value. And most companies will hire an army of specialists and advisors and consultants to help with that. And that's important. And it makes sure that the organizations get it right. But I think what I've always found absolutely fascinating is the actual work starts when the deal is signed and all the consultants go home and the leadership team is left to deliver the results. And really where I found the biggest determiner of success or failure, it really comes down to the people involved and the culture of the organization. And that is really important. And look, I've made a lot of mistakes in this area as a leader by not paying enough attention to these critical issues. But when you look at the companies that do this really, really well, it is a muscle that needs to be built up and it can be built up. But what I find is that the leaders in those organizations that get this right, they're really focused on the people. And they're communicating very closely to the organization and all their external stakeholders on what's working and what's not working. But I think more than just communication, and I think this is an important differentiation, is companies that get this right are listening. They're not just communicating. They're listening to their people. They've got mechanisms in place. And with today's technology, there's no excuse, whether it's mini pulse surveys or just candid conversations using Zoom, you can get a very good pulse of how the organization is thinking and more importantly, feeling about the journey that they're on when it comes to the integration of the organization. So those are some of the really the things that I've learned, the things that really have made a difference, I think, for success from an M&A perspective is get the left brain stuff right, the numbers have to work, but then spend most of the time listening, communicating, and ensuring you're putting in place the right culture to embrace the change that organizations will go through with basically any M&A process. I love that call out on the listening part. It sounds so simple, but probably often overlooked. Chuck, in the spirit of inter-industry learning, which is key to our purpose here, as you know, Based on the cross-section of industries you're exposed to, are there any other opportunities you see for knowledge sharing and learning from a leadership perspective that we haven't touched on yet? Well, yes, categorically, yes. I think it's really interesting. I've been lucky to be in multiple industries over my career, and I always find it fascinating when I go to a new industry because usually what happens is people are proud of the industry they work in, which is rightly so, and, and I love to see that. But they also think that they're a little bit more unique than they really are. And they usually think that they're a little bit better than they really are. And so then what happens is most times people in the leadership that's running these organizations, they underinvest in sort of looking beyond their fences or their industry. And there's so much you can learn by looking at other industries and learning from other leaders. And certainly from my perspective, what I have found is that 
building a good network inside of your industry is mission critical. Every leader will tell you that. But building your network outside of your industry, I think, is as important as building it within. We talked a little bit already about just the challenges and the opportunities out there. The world is just so competitive. And we have some really big issues that we need to solve. And I'll call out one, Emily, which is climate change. I think it is one of the preeminent challenges of our time. And no one company, no one country, no one industry can really solve it. So how are we going to get success in climate change? It is going to take governments and company leaders to really step back and learn from each other. It is going to take leaders then to also work together and build a framework where we can tackle such an enormous opportunity and challenge as climate change. I'm optimistic that that is happening. I think that most industries that I've been part of have embraced the notion that climate change requires purpose, it requires action, and it requires change, and it requires learning. And I think that what you're going to see is that climate change will become one of our greatest success factors. And business leaders, if they can embrace it, then can use those skills to learn about other parts of of their industry and opportunities beyond that. So I think that that is the one area that I would sort of highlight is it's always great to learn from anyone that you can and to share. And I'll give you one other quick example. In safety, trying to keep our people safe. So I, I come out of the industrial world where we're moving big equipment, we're mining, we're producing chemicals. And one of our core values has always been keep your people safe. But we don't have the textbook on what that means. And so we've spanned the world and looked at other industries and no company would say that they compete on safety. They would gladly open up their doors and share everything. And I know the companies I've been involved with willingly did so. I think the same thing needs to happen with climate change. Makes sense. And that cross-pollination between industries. It can happen through the inter-industry collaboration and networking that you're referring to. It can also happen through recruitment. And that's certainly something that HS feels strongly about and tries to contribute to actually cross-pollinating, introducing people from different industries to one another professionally. Chuck, as we bring this conversation to a close, I have one final question. And it's, you know, as you reflect back and think about the future, what are the most important ways your organizations are building on the lessons of 2020? I think there's going to be lots of lessons learned here. And I think there's a lot of positive that's come out of the pandemic in such a horrible situation. I'll start by saying, look, 2020 will go down in the history books as an impact to the family. Yes, of course, there was the economic challenges, but people lost loved ones. And we need to remember first and foremost that this was a human suffering story. But businesses did transform out of the need to really survive. And there is a new reality now from a business model perspective, which I think is going to be quite exciting for the future. And I would say that many industries had to change their business models basically on the fly. Things that would typically take decades took literally weeks. And everything from the office environment to ensuring business continuity to really changing consumer behavior and demands and how you change your business model to meet your customer demands, all of these happened at the speed of light. And I think leaders then, of course, were forced to adjust in the change, which I found extremely fascinating. So I think where I'm at with this is that what you're going to find is that organizations are going to become more employee-centric, which I think is going to be great, and more customer-centric. And I think out of just 2020 and the tragedy that happened, companies had to simplify their offerings and their businesses. And in general, what they did is they focused on their customer and they focused on their employees. 
and some really neat and cool business processes happened. And virtual learning, virtual offices, all these things that people are still trying to figure out now, what does it mean in the new world? And I think we'll find the right spot for most organizations. But I am encouraged that I think we just saw probably a decade's worth of change, transformation, and learning in a single year. And that's going to have profound impacts, which makes me excited about the future. Absolutely. Chuck, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. These insights have been fantastic. And thank you to our audience for listening to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast and this episode of our Canada Leadership Series. Thanks for listening to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.